If you've ever been to school, high school, college, university, there's probably a 100% chance that you studied arts and sciences at some point in time. And this is sort of fundamental to any curriculum. You study the arts, there's various subjects under that umbrella. You study the sciences, there's various subjects and disciplines under that umbrella. If you're a Christian thinker and you're paying attention to what you're being taught in the arts and sciences, you'll notice that there's a lot of non-biblical, anti-biblical ideas that have crept in that really have corrupted the arts and sciences in many of our higher educational institutions. So take science, for example. In science, science revolves around essentially the, the exploration of the systems, the laws, the resources of the physical world. And yet, in our culture, godless man, when he peers into the physical world, tends to come away exalting his own ingenuity. Look at how smart we are. Look what we've discovered. Modern man tends to take science and use it to explain away God, even creating this false dichotomy. Well, do you believe in science or do you believe in God? Modern man even uses the scientific method to advance evil. We use medical science to kill babies in their mother's wombs. We use medical science to put people to death when their lives no, long, lives no longer feel useful. Likewise, if you study art, art has shifted from seeking to reflect the beauty and creativity of God within creation in order that God might be glorified and put on display and manifested. That's all set aside and instead art becomes personal expression. I like to express myself. So I'm gonna take a, a, a piece of dirt and throw it at a canvas and call that art. Or dip my paintbrush in some red paint and just swipe it across the canvas. And you're like, how profound. <laughs> how expressive. You're like, yeah, I was expressing myself. Remember years ago when a guy showed up in Windsor with hundreds and hundreds of boxes of cornflakes? And the crowds assembled at the riverfront, and he was going to put on this big, dramatic, artistic display. So we'd get up and run around the dance and sprinkle cornflakes everywhere. And everyone's like, wow, what a profound thinker. <laughs> the only people that benefited that from that were the geese <laughs> live along the river. But this is how art is used for personal expression, even for perversion, to express one's perversion, to glorify man's creative insights. These are the dominant ideas within modern science and art. So how should we then respond as Christians? Should we just abandon the arts and sciences as feeble, man-centered pursuits? No. We need to work to reclaim a Christian view of art and science that glorifies God and blesses the creature you and I, within the creator's creation. Our premise then is that Christ is the creator who is owed the creature's worship. So no matter what we're doing, we want to worship God. And we don't want to be so heavenly minded 
so aware of what's going to take place in heaven that we forget to observe the created order around us because God actually uses creation to manifest his glory and to teach us some magnificent lessons. The psalmist said in Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God. So every once in a while, you have to leave your apartment and look up. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So every once in a while, you have to leave the video game console inside and go outside and actually look around you, preferably get outside of the concrete jungle and look around you and observe the sky. I don't know of anyone that doesn't enjoy a dark night out in the middle of the boondocks when the stars are in the sky and there's just something magnificent about it. But unfortunately, because we like to cram ourselves in cities and keep all the lights on on the streets, we rarely see it. But the Bible teaches us that God reveals aspects of his glory through creation. And that pushes us towards worship. Therefore, the resources, the systems, the laws of creation can rightly be studied and used by mankind Likewise, the beauty of creation can rightly be expressed through the arts and can even aid in our worship. From a Christian perspective, both art and science must be activities of stewardship that glorify the creator and bless the creature. So let's start with a discussion, a biblical discussion about science. And this is under a sermon series, which I've called Nation Rebuilders. What we're trying to understand is how do we think Christianly about all of life, even outside of evangelism and biblical preaching and Christian marriage? How do we think biblically about all of life? How do we think biblically about law, education, science, art? Historically, Christian people were taught this in their schools because no matter what subject you were teaching or learning, God was involved. We've forgotten that. We've tossed God aside to the point that many people, even in our own church, because I think probably the majority of us were educated within the Western system of education. It's hard for us to even understand how does God relate to science? How does God relate to art? How does God relate to medicine? How does God relate to law? Why, are we, why do we never talk about that? So the sermon series that I've developed is a topical series looking at various aspects of a Christian world and life. Let's talk about science. So what's science all about from a Christian perspective? Well, through science, we seek to understand and steward creation to glorify God. In Proverbs, we are actually invited to observe the structures and activities of animals within creation in order that we might grow in wisdom. So someone might come to you and say, friend, pastor, small group leader, youth director, how can I grow in wisdom and knowledge? We should point people to the Bible. But when you point people to the Bible, what you'll find out about the Bible is the Bible also points you back to the world around you. And it actually encourages us to observe certain things within creation. We call it science when we observe the laws, the structures of the physical world. Look at the world around you. There's some lessons that God reveals through creation itself. 
This one relates to animal life. So here's what it says in Proverbs chapter 30, beginning with verse 24. Four things on earth are small, but are exceedingly wise. Keep in mind, Proverbs is all about growing in wisdom. So it's like, well, how do I, how do I learn about wisdom? The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in the king's palaces. What's the writer doing here? He's encouraging us to observe the physical world. And through observation, there are certain lessons that we can learn. In this passage, we learn a lesson about provision. We learn a lesson about protection, a lesson about organization, a lesson about how that which is obscure can become royalty. There's some lessons there. We could preach a whole sermon on that, just giving you a quick overview. In creation, we learn valuable lessons about life, how to live, how to make decisions. The, the preface to this, these descriptions is about growing in wisdom. Solomon blessed others through his wisdom, not just his knowledge of divine things, but also of the natural world. If you head on over to 1 Kings chapter 4, it describes Solomon's wisdom of God and of the natural world and how as a result of his wisdom, he was a blessing to the nations. Notice it starts off as follows. This is 1 Kings 4, 29 to 34. And God gave, so the source of what is about to be revealed is God. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. It's pretty comprehensive wisdom he has here. For he was wiser than all other men. Now we don't know who these men were, but those that would have received this originally would have obviously understood these men that were apparently known for their wisdom. He was wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and He-Man. By the way, if I was to be able to pick my name, I wouldn't mind that one. I mean, Aaron's pretty good. It's first in alphabetical order. You can't beat two A's. But He-Man Rock, how does that sound? That's pretty good. Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Because you're reading the Bible, you would think, if you'd never read this before, that God was going to start going into his wisdom and describe it like this guy knew everything there was to know about ecclesiology and hamartiology and eschatology and soteriology, all the categories of systematic theology. This guy was a Bible genius. He knew everything about the Bible and God's word and he lectured on spiritual things. That's what you would assume because this is the Bible. And after all, in the modern church, we've told people all that really matters is divine revelation. Who cares about science and art and mathematics? And... But that's not true. 
that's not a biblical worldview. Because here's what it was that was so impressive about Solomon. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He was an artist par excellence. He spoke of trees, so he knew something about biology. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This wisdom that he has about the natural world around him is given to him by God. Isn't that what it says at the first verse there? And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. He was the ultimate artist, the ultimate scientist. He observed the world around him. He could lecture on a wide variety of subjects. He was a wordsmith, but he also knew how to grow things. He knew how to take care of animals. He could describe their behavior, their feeding patterns, their reproductive patterns. Sadly, in Western civilization, we have compartmentalized or pillarized our education. So you go through a general educational process, and then all you do is you study one subject. So you, you are an expert in a specific aspect and sub-aspect of biology. And God forbid if you ever speak about carpentry. This person over here is an expert in electricity, and this person's an expert in medicine, and this person's an expert in masonry, and this person's an expert in automotive repair. And every time you want to do something, you have to call the next expert because all you know is one singular little tiny slice of life. We've pillarized education. We've compartmentalized education. And this leaks through in the culture wars. We live in the age of the cult of the expert. You notice that language? The cult of the expert. Well, you can't speak to medicine. You can't speak to biology. You can't speak to construction. You're not certified. You're not an expert. You just stay in your little category. Well, this is a problem because we also tend to compartmentalize biblical theological studies and that when we think of wisdom, we think, well, wisdom is just, the wisest person in the room is obviously the person that can memorize the most Bible verses. And in doing so, we create churches where people know the content of scripture or the content of their very narrowly focused education, but they can't possibly think about all of life from a Christian perspective because they've never even thought about it. They've never talked about it. People know the content of scripture, but have very little knowledge of the world around them. And so it becomes impossible for us to interpret the world in light of the word. Because we don't even know what the world's made of, composed of. We don't even know how it works. I'm a pastor. What right do I have to speak to law? I don't have a law degree. What right do I have to be building things? I'm not a Red Seal tradesman. What right do I have to fill in the blank? We've compartmentalized. And so increasingly, it's almost impossible for Christians to think Christianly about all of life. You have to default to the expert, default to the expert, default to the expert. 
And most of the experts don't even know you're God. So you literally are trusting in chariots and horses as you process life. Now, though basic by our standards, ancient believers even dabbled in medicine and physical healing. In Isaiah chapter 38, verse 21, this prophet, this biblical preacher, I'm going to say that again, this prophet, this biblical preacher offered medical advice to the king. Now, Isaiah had said, this is Isaiah 38, 21, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Now we can laugh at that, a cake of figs on a boil. We have various medical treatments that are superior to that. Okay, granted, we've developed. But it's interesting that in that culture, they understood if you have a boil, this is how you treat it. And Isaiah didn't say, well, I'm, I'm the preacher, I'm the prophet, I'm not gonna, God forbid if I ever touch down in the area of physical medicine, medical science. So I'm never going to offer you any advice. The apostle Paul was also comfortable giving medical advice to Timothy, who evidently had some stomach issues. He said to him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now that's a far cry from today where church leaders are terrified to even speak about basic medical issues in the church, like the need for us to pay attention to our diet, to not be gluttons, like the need for us to lose weight if we're packing on the pounds, like the need for us to quit smoking if we're smoking. This is good advice. Do you have to be an expert in smokeology? to say to your buddy, hey, you might want to quit smoking. It's not great for you. The Bible even provides epidemiological rules. In Leviticus chapter 13, if there's a contagious disease, the one here that's mentioned is some form of ancient leprosy. Verses 45 and 46 forms the basis of quarantine laws. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out unclean, unclean. I know it sounds a little exclusionary, but when you couldn't log into the system to see what the guy's disease was, there had to be some physical evidence that you weren't a healthy person so that someone didn't accidentally get too close to you and get infected. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He's unclean, he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Civilizations for centuries have based their epidemiology on this. If you're contagious, stay home. It's basic to God's law. It makes sense. Unfortunately, we've done the exact opposite. If you're healthy, stay home. Okay. So by observing and studying the world around us, which, by the way, must always presuppose that we're studying creation. We're studying creation. We're not studying the end result of a series of random processes that has no real structure, law, stability, or morality connected to it as Darwinian evolution would teach us. We're studying creation. We're studying something that was created by God. When we observe creation, we learn moral lessons. We learn life lessons. We can develop medical technology that can actually 
glorify God as we skillfully use our talents to heal people and bless others. We can even improve the quality of life. As much as we may have issues with our medical system, we're thankful for it. You know, I have a dentist I can go, go to. You know, in the old days, you sort of, you know, dig out the cavity, stick in a stone and squeeze a little pine sap in around it, just hope that it lasts and you don't get infected. I'm thankful that we have modern dental science. I'm thankful that scientists know that if you're going to get a blood transfusion, you should probably go for the same kind of blood that you have. In the old days, they tried to transfuse people with dog's blood. It didn't last. Well, it's red, it's wet, but it didn't last. People died from things like that. So we're thankful that we've advanced. But when we think about life, we must think Christianly about the physical world around us. We must remember that the physical world around us is God's creation. So if you toss out God, you'll never fully understand it. This is why so much of modern science, it conflicts. They're always changing. Some, some of it is in direct contradiction, especially in the biological sciences of gender right now. You know what it's all about. I don't need to talk to it. There's a lot of confusion because it doesn't presuppose that there's a God that statically defines right and wrong and systems and laws within creation. It's, it's fluid. It's fluid. It's always evolving or devolving. In this respect, every one of you should understand that you're a scientist of sorts. You should pay attention to the natural world around you and learn from it. But for those of you that are especially gifted in the sciences, we want to encourage you to go for it, to become good at it, to become skilled in it, to learn as much as you can from creation so that you can be a blessing to those around you. But never forget, never forget, it's ultimately for the blessing of humanity and the glory of God. It's not just to increase your own ingenuity or to reinforce the lies that, well, there is no God. Just all happened from random chance. And then we have art. Through art, we can use our creative skills to glorify God. Daniel, who was probably a close second for being the wisest man in the Bible, was taken into captivity in Babylon in about 586 with some of his friends. They would have probably all have been from noble families, kind of teenagers. They were like the youth group of the day. And in Daniel 1.17, here's how it describes Daniel and his three friends. As for these four youths, God gave, again, notice the source, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So Daniel had this little extra thing going on. He could interpret dreams. But all of them were really skilled and well-schooled in literature and in wisdom. Literature is an art form. And thank God for it. Literature has been used by many mighty prophets of God to give us the word of God. You do know that everyone that wrote a Bible book first had to learn to talk and learn the alphabet and write and learn the basic laws of grammar in order to be used of by God. These weren't illiterate people. There were illiterate prophets. There's writing prophets and non-writing prophets. 
but the books that ended up in the Bible are from the writing prophets. And in the Bible, there's such a thing as different genres. There's narrative, there's chronology, there's genealogy, there's psalm, there's proverbs, there's apocalyptic literature. And then there's subsets of literature within those, within the gospels, there's parables, for example. And in order to write parables, apocalyptic literature, Psalms, Proverbs, whatever kind of literature it is you're writing, you have to first understand the basic structures that govern those kinds of literature. So if you are in school today and you're an English student and you're studying poetry, English poetry, you're going to learn all the laws and structures that govern English poetry. You don't just make it up. You have to follow the rules. So when we read the Bible, the interesting thing about it is, even though it was written by 40 authors over about 1,000 years, the writers of the Bible, they each demonstrate their own personality. Their personality leaks through on the pages of Scripture. God oversaw it to make sure that every, page, every word that ended up on the page was from him, was inspired by him. But Mark doesn't write like Matthew, and Matthew doesn't write like John. They have different literary styles, but they all use the conventions of grammar in order to write. First, they had to learn that. And then God utilized their skill sets to bring blessing to the world by penning the book that we now know as the Bible. Well, Daniel also was gifted in literature. And it was because of his education that he ended up in the courts of the kings of Babylon and the Medes and the Persians, and was used of by God because he went to school, because he was skilled in learning. Take David as another great example. Usually we think of David just as the warrior king. He's sort of like the, you know, Sylvester Stallone of the Old Testament. You just can't picture Sylvester writing poetry or dancing before the Lord. But David was not only a warrior, a man skilled in military strategy, he was also a poet. He was a songwriter. He was even a dancer, guys. He danced before the Lord. I mean, his wife thought his dancing was kind of terrible. Most wives probably think their husband's dancing is terrible today too. But he was a man that had a broad variety of skill sets. Likewise, when God commissioned the tabernacle under Moses, he didn't commission a boring looking pole barn. Ah, let's just, it's, it's not, it's, we're just going to heaven. We don't need anything that looks good. Just throw up an old pole barn, you know, give the rest of the money to the poor. This is the mindset, even in the church today, we're like opposed to architecture. We're opposed to beauty. Somehow that's more spiritual. Meeting in a pole barn, the uglier your house, the more spiritual you are. The uglier you look, the more spiritual you are. No, he had Moses hire skilled craftsmen who devised intricate artistic designs to point people to the glory of God. In Exodus 31, verses 44 to, uh, 1 to 5, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name. Notice how personal this is. I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge, and all craftsmanship. Hmm. Tradesmen? 
are filled with the Spirit of God and can be endowed talents and skills. I thought it was just people that went to university that earned highfalutin degrees in physics and philosophy. They were the real smarty pants. No, God doesn't create that dualistic mindset for us. Whether we're using our minds or our hands, those skills are given to us by God and we should use them to the max. What are they using them for? To devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. How many of you who work with your hands have ever thought about the fact that your talents and skills are given to you by God and are to be used for the glory and honor of God? Centuries later, so we have the tabernacle, a portable temple of sorts. Centuries later, when Solomon was preparing to build a permanent temple, he also searched for men skilled to build the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 7, it says, And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. That's a long way off on the coast. And he was the son of the widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. He was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. These people received their skills from God and were endowed with the Holy Spirit to glorify God and bring blessings to the nations. How sad that we have reduced the important stuff of life down to preaching. The important vocations. You want a vocation that really matters? You need to go to Africa to be a missionary. You need to be a preacher, otherwise you're a loser. That's the subliminal message that a lot of people receive. So you have people that aren't satisfied. They're electricians, they're carpenters, they're masons, they're pool installers. They're artistic designers, they're, they're painters, sculptors, engineers, and they can't figure out how in the world could God possibly actually use me? Because they've never been taught that all the skills and talents that we are given by God are there for the glory and honor of God and the blessings of others. We don't need 500 preachers in this church, but we do need engineers that think Christianly and scientists that think Christianly and tradesmen that think Christianly, and musicians that think Christianly, and people working on assembly lines that think Christianly and serve the Lord with excellence, not perfection, none of us are perfect, but with excellence, and to work on our craft and our skill sets so that we are the best of the best, not for our own honor and glory, not for purposes of evil, but to bring honor and glory to God. Those with musical skills would lead God's people in worship. In Psalm 33.3, it says, sing to him with a new song. It's okay to have new songs, people. (laughs) Sing to him with a new song. Play skillfully on the strings. It's okay to have guitars, people. With loud shouts. It's okay to sing above 30 decibels, people. Notice how often we take anti-biblical, unbiblical ideas and impose them upon churches and teach people that the only way you can actually worship is to sing the old stuff without instruments and in just a little bit of a squeaky muffled voice. That's not, that's not how the Bible presents this. There's nothing wrong with singing quietly, with 
singing a cappella, with singing old music. But read Psalm 33, 3, and it helps us to understand the idea that God is okay with that which is fresh, that which is creative, that, that which involves instrumentation, and that which is loud. So make sure that your view of worship is actually informed by scripture, not your tradition. So even the musical, musically skilled among us has a place to be used of by the Lord. By the way, I do want to draw your attention to a little word here. It's kind of important. Play skillfully. Skillfully, right? So you're like, hey, pastor, I feel the Lord has called me and told me by myself, I know you weren't around to hear it, but he told me that he would like you to ask me to sing a solo on Sunday. Right? You sound like a screeching cat. No. I just started playing the keyboards last week. God doesn't care about the sound. It's all about the heart. So could I maybe play? No. I, I think I'm a pretty good preacher. Preach to yourself. Okay, we're not letting you on the platform. Sorry. So each of us has skills, strengths, weaknesses. I have weaknesses. I have strengths. You have weaknesses, strengths. We can always overcome some of our weaknesses with education, but some of it's just innate. There's things I'm never going to be good at. I'm just never, very few things, but as I think about it, <laughs> but there's certain things I'm never going to be good at, like breakdancing. Although I <laughs> could probably learn a little bit. So using our skills to the glory and honor of God is what we want to aim for and making sure we are developing in our skills. So here's some take-home take lessons for you just to summarize this. I've got four of them written down. Number one, art and science can never be disconnected by God or they will become corrupt. Art and science can never be disconnected from God or they will become corrupt. Art is designed to express his handiwork. Science is designed to study his handiwork. Therefore, Christian scientists and Christian artists always have an advantage over those that have denied the creator God. There will always be ambiguity and uncertainty if you don't understand that what you're studying is God's creation. What you're painting is God's creation. Secondly, it's a sad thing that many Christians have never been taught that their skills in science, literature, craftsmanship, and music are as much a blessing from God as the ability to preach and evangelize. From a Christian perspective, then, we should all strive to be A-plus in our field, not by comparing ourselves to others. But if you weld, be the best welder you can possibly be. If you paint, be the best painter you can possibly be. If you farm, be the best farmer that you can possibly be. If you're a designer, be the best designer that you can possibly be. If you're an engineer, be the best engineer that you can possibly be. Don't cut corners. Don't just, you know, like when I went to school, as long as I get a 51, I get my credit. Just to the bare minimum. Now, you should be a conscientious, hardworking servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever area of life God has called you to. 
Third, seek wisdom and skill in all you do. Never stop learning. You don't stop learning when you graduate from grade eight or grade 12 or you get your BA. Always seek to learn, grow in skill and knowledge and your ability to think more clearly about life. Your ability to read better, your ability to write better, your ability to plumb better, your ability to bank better. We should always be seeking to maximize our potential for God. That doesn't mean you're going to be the greatest of the greatest. But many of you have skills and talents and abilities you probably never even started to explore. Be like Solomon. Expand your worldview. Learn to think Christianly about a little bit of everything. It'll be a blessing to many. Finally, let's remember art and science are not ultimately about us. They're not to inflate our ego. Look how great of a scientist I am. They're not for the purpose of self-expression. It's not what art is. I told the first service, I was an art major, believe it or not, in high school. Remember back in the days when they had OAC? How many of you remember what an OAC is? Kind of like grade 13. So I went right through the visual art program. I did my OAC in art. And this was the, the dominant discussion. It wasn't about how to paint with acrylics or how to sculpt. It was always about the rest of my class arguing art is about self-expression. It's about self-expression. I was like, no, it's not about self-expression. It's about somehow reflecting the beauty or brokenness of God's creation. We would argue about this almost every single day. But I was the minority. And I think if I studied, I haven't, but at the fine arts faculty here at the University of Windsor, I'd discover the same thing. It's all about self-expression, personal expression. Mm, aren't you a profound thinker? What does that art, what does that beautiful painting possibly mean? What do you think it means? What do you think it means? Whatever you want it to mean. It's nonsense. When we engage in art, we do it for the honor and glory of God to express what already is within creation, either in its beauty or at times redemptively in its brokenness in order that God might be honored and glorified. And we can be a blessing to the world by stewarding our abilities for the common good, better use of resources, better use of the discoveries that we make in art and sciences for healing people, for technology, for management systems, etc. We also need to bring Christian values back into these various aspects of life, back into science, back into art, so that people truly might benefit from them and God might be glorified. I want to leave you finally with one verse found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. One thing that we all do every day, unless we're fasting, is we eat and drink. And even something that rudimentary, that basic, that mundane. Do you know we're supposed to do that to the glory of God? It says in that passage, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, so that applies to everything else, do all to the glory of God. So if you're an insurance salesman, do it to the glory of God. If you're a stay-at-home mom, do it to the glory of God. If you're a painter, a designer, a banker, a baker, a candlestick maker, <laughs> do all to the glory of God. And you're able to do it to the glory of God when you understand why you're doing it. You want to bless other people with your efforts and work? 
and you wanna ultimately put God's creativity and God's beauty on display. May that be our goal. And as a result, may we start to see transformation take place in our own nation.